0: Let's pray. eh? Father, I thank you for what you're doing in our community. We love you. Just appreciate that your spirit is here and at work, working in us, teaching us of who you are. You're faithful and true. And I just ask that this evening a glimpse of who you are that would be so life-changing that we are truly altered. That the revelation of Christ would overcome Of devotion and relationship with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. I I feel tonight as well just to continue sharing what God has been doing (laughs) in me over the last little while. um, And I'm I feel like my heart is overflowing with gratitude to him and for who he is. And like I said a couple of weeks ago, I've I've been enjoying simply being with him in in all things. And being with Him all the time used to be my cop-out excuse. We were just talking about this the other day. A cop-out excuse for the sake of not wanting to spend time with Him. So to say, well, I'm I'm with Him all the time. (laughs) Um, But now it's become something that's been so real and so true and so beautiful that to truly be with Him all the time is always to want to be with Him. And so whenever the opportunity presents itself, that is almost always my first desire is to simply sit with them and be with them. And at the moment, life is busier than it's ever been before. Um, um, An exam week at university, I've got a 40% due on Thursday with an an exam and an application for the job I want to work at next year, (laughs) followed by two more exams the next week. So I'm the first At the library in the morning at university, I'm often the last to leave. (laughs) We have a busy household and a busy life, and yet the most beautiful thing has been to discover the simplicity of being with him through it. Um, And my time sitting with him is restricted to between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m., but now I find that being with him throughout the day is simply an extension of that time. And sitting with him in the morning is simply an extension of the time throughout the rest of the day. So it's an unbroken continuum of his presence with me and with us when we're in him. So the testimony tonight is going to be, it is going to be sharing not just like what he's doing in the sense of this is my life, but in the sense of I hope that you, you hear the testimony that comes through the scriptures um, as we just look into the Psalms and and a couple of other verses and, and I'm perhaps more of previous. for at least two hours a day minimum, and so <laughs> I would I, w- I would go and I'd and I'd walk and I'd sit in the bush and a couple of times people came across me <laughs> and it was a bit weird. You know, yeah. what are you doing here? but i was I was committed to being I was committed to being religious, and I think I was more devoted to my devotion <laughs> than I was devoted to him. Um, and even in that, his grace is stunning and beautiful because in those times he revealed so much of his heart and who he was to me and continues to do. but it wasn't those times; it was his goodness. And that's the most important thing to realize, that no amount of time, no Bible reading, no scripture knowledge can bring that. living knowledge of the person of Jesus into your heart that changes you in a living and real way. And I feel now that if that was the case, to spend two hours a day, that would be great. And I would love that. But it's not for the sake of pleasing him. And I love what Paul had to say this morning about the law and how the issue is not just about people who think that they need to follow the Mosaic law, but people that feel that they need to follow law to be with him in general. And that time with him was, in in essence, he was at work, but the attitude of my heart was I was living legalistically for the sake of knowing him. Um, And... I feel like the testimony of the last couple of months has been one of being separate from him to learning what it means to be together with him. And I feel this is the essence of the gospel. In in Ephesians it talks about you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And this is the gospel. It was always more than saving us from sin. The essence of the gospel is a relationship that was broken, but a relationship now that's been made whole in Christ. And so a couple of weeks ago I talked about, I used the typology of Tess and I and our marriage and the um, bride and the bridegroom, and tonight I'm going to talk about Christ as the shepherd. And it talks about how he is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And so if you can hear, I'm going to be probably speaking the same message just in another way, which is what's been happening here, I think, for five or six years. The same message has come every single week for those who have ears to hear the, the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel, which is an invitation back to a relationship with our Father. in thinking about what it means to share on the good shepherd or Christ as our shepherd, the response that I see in people's eyes when I've mentioned it to them is almost like this is Sunday school talk. And, you know, I just came across an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians and it says that if anyone supposes he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him anyone supposes he knows anything he has not known as he ought to know. And I feel like the danger in hearing about the shepherd is that we would immediately think we know as we ought to know. But it says if anyone loves God he is known by him. And that's the goal to love him. To know him in this way and to be known by him. And so the first verse I'd like to talk about is Matthew nine thirty six, um, you don't need to turn there. Just just listen to it. It's only one verse. Um, it's Jesus, and he says, "Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd." So interesting, like sh- they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like children without a father. They were like a wife with an absent husband. And it's been interesting over the last little while. Tess has been coming home from work and she's now overseeing a um, after school care program. And she comes home and tells me about these kids who's Parents are absent from their lives. They're children without parents. They're sheep without a shepherd. And it's the kids that are the most broken are the ones whose parents are absent. And there's something that's happened. There's been a disconnect in the relationship. And so Jesus, he looks and he has compassion I feel like for the first time in my life, my heart is filled with compassion. And (laughs) even though this is ridiculous that I'd be crying every time I preach now, (laughs) (laughs) turning into a woman, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) they were sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus looked and he felt compassion. They were distressed and they were dispirited. And this is the mystery of the gospel. That that which is lost has been found. That which was broken has been made whole. And Jesus, he says, the spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring liberty to the captives. And so, Father, I just ask that tonight you would bind up our broken hearts. You'd flood us with your life and with your love. We'd come back to you as your sheep to know truly the shepherd and the captain of our salvation. I've got a, came across a an interesting poem and to me it, it speaks of well I've got two poems for you actually and they're in stark contrast to each other. And I think I might just start by reading it. Um, Some of you may know it. It was made famous by Nelson Mandela, who circulated this poem with the other prisoners on the island that he was imprisoned on. It was also a famous one in terms of Winston Churchill, who often used to quote it to to different people. But I'll, I'll just I'll just read it out, and say so just listen to this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be, for my unconquerable soul. In the foul clutch of circumstance, I have not winced of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And I just came I, coming across this poem. I don't remember Dad, it was written on the cover of the Economist when Nelson Mandela died, and it and it struck me. And I had I just remembered it um, when I was had a convers an interesting conversation with a guy this week, and it reminded me of this poem, but. This is, oh, thanks, bro. What what about it? This poem—it was the words are poetic. They—they flow. They. They're they're almost intoxicating. And for someone who enjoys reading and enjoys literature, there's something that grabs you about it. And yet there's something that is so totally opposed to the gospel. This self-confidence. The man who wrote it actually had had a leg amputated He'd come from an impoverished background and he'd kind of worked his way up. And the doctor said he was going to have to have his other leg amputated, but he found one of the greatest surgeons in the land at the time and they managed to save his, his other leg and he ended up becoming quite successful. So he was a man who in and of himself had overcome such great difficulties, but when you when you read the poem you hear the root of humanism and pride and self confidence that comes through I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul under the bludgeonings of chance my head is bloody but i uh, but i and so he's been through the hard times and he's testifying to his own strength and his own ability to overcome these harshest of obstacles without bowing his head, without humbling his heart, without coming to an end of himself. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. This individualism, this self-confidence, this man who is ruling and governing his own life independently of the God who made him. And now I'd, I'd like to read the second poem, which I believe is almost the complete opposite And this one here is beautifully written. The the first one, I can see why the devil would come as an angel of light, because in some ways, reading something like this is almost as dangerous as showing some pornography on the screen or something like that, because it, 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 like you say, it seduces the flesh, the fish, like you said, it it loves it. But here's here's the contrast. Here's the opposite. Psalm twenty-three. Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Forever. I just saw it. Beautiful. Here's a man who was bowed. Here's a man whose greatest boast was not his independence, but his dependence. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I just feel like there's about 50 sermons in that one line. And even just trying to unpack that line, I feel like I've just got this. There were so many thoughts that I'm not sure what will, almost, almost what to say. But so David he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And there's something so staggering about this relationship that he shares with his Lord that's created in him a heart that recognizes there's no more desire left in me for any other thing. He doesn't say, the Lord is my shepherd, he will provide for me. For well, The Lord is my shepherd, He's, he, he provides my needs says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's been a transaction that's taken place. His anxious soul has been satisfied and quieted. He's not in want. He's not in want for earthly things, and he's not in want for heavenly things. In the sense that he's no longer striving for his own salvation. The Lord is his shepherd. And the reason why he does not want is because the Lord is his shepherd, and he knows truly the Lord as his shepherd. Because we can know him as the Lord is a provider, but David he doesn't say that. He says, the Lord is a my shepherd. It's true. It's real. It's a testimony. I no longer want. I no longer have desires that are separate from him. And that's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. What does it mean to die to self? It means to die to being separate, living separately, having separate agendas and desires from him. And so David has died in that sense, he no longer wants and I feel for myself, that has been one of the most enormous things uh, I would read verses like in, in First John um, where he talks about um, there's no fear in love he says because fear involves punishment and perfect love casts out all fear and I remember talking with Greg about this a few years back, and I was shared with him that I was I was fearful of the judgment. It was something that was so real to me. It's been something that's been real to me since I've been a Christian, is having to face him and to stand before him. And I was taken aback that Greg would. He quoted the scripture to me. He says, "But there's no fear in love. This is." Perfect love casts out all fear. And uh, it's been recently that that has become so real within me that I feel like he's done a work where I no longer have to fear standing before him because he is my shepherd. He's the one who is the captain, like Paul talked about this morning, of my salvation. He's the one who takes Ultimate responsibility for us and for our salvation. And for us, the responsibility is to trust him and to believe that he's going to be faithful to perform on the promises that he has given. back to Abraham. Abraham, like we talked about a couple weeks ago and like Paul talked about this morning, was promised the son and his promise promised not just any son, but a son through whom all the nations of the earth would come into spiritual life and spiritual blessing through. So this promise was for a son but ultimately the promise was of of the son, the promised Messiah, and so Abraham, after 90 years, finally receives the son, and he's tested by God, and he's asked to take the son up onto the mountain and to slaughter him, to offer him up as as a sacrifice. And so Abraham is faithful and obedient to what God has asked, and he goes. And you probably all know the story. He goes to to slaughter him on the mountain, and God stops him. And what is interesting is that Abraham is speaking with Isaac, um, and he he says this. He says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. So interesting, it says in Hebrews that Abraham reasoned in his heart that he would be able to raise him from the dead. How did Abraham know? He knew that the son was a promised son, a son that all spiritual life and spiritual blessing would come through for all future generations. And he was prepared to go and sacrifice that son. He says he reasoned in his heart that God would raise him from the dead. And I think, why why does he know that God would be so faithful to him in that way? It says Abraham was a friend of God. He walked with God. He knew God. He knew that God would be faithful to make a way to redeem and restore his people back to him and back into this closeness of relationship because he was walking and living in that relationship before the sacrifice even came and was even made. And so I just think, how do we know that Jesus is going to be faithful to perform on what he said, that he's going to come back, that we're going to become the firstborn, uh, sorry, the, the fir- uh, that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. How do we know that we are going to be partakers in this resurrection? It's because we've already entered into the spiritual life of the resurrection before the physical resurrection has even taken place. So I hope you grasp, what what is that i'm attempting to communicate here because this is once again this is the pattern this is faith abraham saw a city that was future and it was as if he had inherited the promise then and so i feel how do i how am i so confident that we will be resurrected with him because that resurrection life and power is absolutely at work in my heart and has been for, for a number of years. And so verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yeah, David has absolute trust that the events and the situations in his life are for the sake of the restoration of his soul and the sake of righteousness. And The best example I can think of um, just came across recently. He's been reading through Genesis, and it's Jacob. Ah, uh, sorry, not Jacob. Um, Joseph, Joseph. Um, and Joseph, his brothers were jealous of him. Uh, they couldn't stand that he had this close relationship with their father that they didn't have. And so they they got together and they reasoned and they schemed and they thought, well, "What what can we do? And so they decided, oh, well, we better kill him. Um, that didn't end up happening, they decided amongst themselves, oh, we better not kill him, we'll just sell him into slavery for the rest of his life. It's not much better. Um, but what's beautiful is that, a couple of pages over, um, Joseph, if, if you know the story, he, he's sold into slavery in Egypt and he becomes um, almost like a king in the land. He, he becomes set over the people. Um, and the very people who sold him into slavery were the very people that he ended up being, in essence, the the savior of. <laughs> um, and so, so what happens is that there's this there's this awesome meeting where Joseph is um, comes back to his brothers after all this time, um, and he says, "Don't, don't wa- oh actually maybe I'll, I'll read it. Let's have a look." So it says, then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land these two years and there are still five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. I thought, wow, what an attitude this man has that his jealous brothers tried to kill him, sold him into slavery and he could say, this has been done for the sake of your deliverance, for the sake of life. And I just think, This is the heart of David who sees all of life's circumstances as being divinely inspired for his own growth in God and the growth of others. And I think that is how we are to view life, is that everything comes from him. Like I said last week, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no hint of a shifting shadow. Everything good and perfect comes from him, even the things that could be perceived as negative. But the issue is not the things or the situations. The issue is our attitude. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Interesting. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that death to him is no longer the most real thing to him. it's It's become a shadow. The shadow of a dog can't bite you. No matter how often in science on the OHPs we did the you know the dog fights <laughs> with our hands, they weren't real dogs; they were an illusion. And so David has the perspective to see. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, this, I fear no evil, for you are with me." And this is. The absolute essence for you are with me you are my shepherd and this is I I feel like the deepest and most profound point is simply to, to be with him to know that he is with us and that we are with him So from that perspective, he can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear nothing. Jesus describes what it means to be sheep of the shepherd in John 10. And he says this, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so no matter what we go through, this thing is so sure and so certain that He is with us. Persecution can't take God away from you. Someone else's opinion of who I am can't take Christ away from us. What's, what's the worst that my university can do to me? Is to give me an E. <laughs> and yet we love and worship and serve and walk with a God who we're going to be with for eternity. That he's promised us himself And so they can take the degree if they really want to. They can take the reputation. But they can't take the thing of absolute, ultimate, eternal value, which is Christ. And so I think that is the most encouraging and beautiful thing. That we can have him. And that no one is able to snatch us as a sheep out of the Father's hand. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And it says in Proverbs Rebuke a fool and he'll hate you, but rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. Once again there's an attitude, there's a perspective. And to David, his rod and his staff, they are a comfort to him. I, I'm finding now that I'm I'm more worried that someone wouldn't rebuke me if there's something wrong than being worried that they would rebuke me. Because who, who wouldn't want to know in the light of eternity? Who wouldn't want to be told that they've been running in vain I pray that we don't run in vain. I pray that we as a community can be in in a depth of relationship with one another where the staff and the rod, they comfort us. They remind us that we are absolutely, that we are loved, that we are in him. And the father, it says, that he disciplines those whom he loves. And having the opportunity to often work with youth over the last, or oh, it's been a little while now, but it's the kids who haven't had the rod. They're the messed up ones, I was saying earlier, with Tessa's work. It's the ones who have not had parents who were disciplined. And yet we have the perfect and good Father. And it's for us to come to this maturity and perspective where his staff and and his rod, they comfort us because it reminds us that we're in him. And as a shepherd, he's not prepared to let us drift away. So surely goodness and love and kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely, that's his great conclusion. Surely goodness and love and kindness will follow me all the days of my life. There's no other outcome. There's no other explanation surely that this great shepherd and guardian not just of our lives but of our souls surely his goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever forever the promise is an eternal promise. The invitation is an eternal invitation to be with Him. And that to me has become my greatest desire is to be with Him, to dwell in the house of the Lord, which is not the rock, it's to be in Him and with Him. So just as I was putting this together, I was, I was struck by the passage in, in Matthew. I might read it, actually. And he talks about these sheep who respond on the day of judgment. Just one second. Matthew 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, as the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father and here at the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see uh, you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it, to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it unto me. And so here are sheep who know the shepherd, who have become righteous. They've been with him. And I love their response. It's so, It's so innate. It's so authentic. When did we ever do that for you? They don't even know their own goodness. They don't know their righteousness. They're entirely unaware that they're in the midst of the greatest judgment of all of human history. And they say, when When did we do those things to you? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. And so what does it mean to truly know the shepherd? What does it actually look like in our lives? To be a sheep who follow the shepherd, it can't not be expressed in our relationships to one another. He who claims I know God and yet does not love his brother is a liar. You cannot know and love the shepherd without loving the sheep. And so I just think that is what he's calling us and inviting us to. That this relationship with him would be so deep and real within us that our innate and natural response will be to love each other, to lay down our lives for one another, to become the community of people that he desires that would demonstrate him well on earth. Thanks, Tim. Shall we pray? Let's, Let's...
1: What an amazing word from the Lord. Um, yeah, I just got the sense as we are going into this and as Sam was speaking, you know, we hear people up the front saying, my desire is to be with the Lord and to meet with him. My, I love God and all these things, and it's through this process they've gone through, they've got to this place where that's a desire in their heart. But, you know, there's times when I'm like, man, not desiring you God as I'm hearing from the front I'm not in love with you as I hear these people say they are and I believe the Lord would say to us that the key to receiving that desire because it's a desire that he puts in our hearts is to seek him for that desire is to seek him for that love. Every time you hear something from the front and you hear a reality of where someone's at, it's not I'm there and you're not. It's I want to share this with you so that you can come into this. And this is what's Greg's sharing. And there's, you know, so we just need to cry out. That's the broken and contrite heart that cries out and just says, Lord, I don't have this love. I don't have this desire for you. Lord, give me. That love. Take me to a place where I desire you and I seek you with all I have. I think of the scripture where it talks about the guy, and, he's, and, and Jesus says um, something about, you know, if, if you believe these things would help me. And the guy says, Help me with my unbelief. That is the cry of our hearts. Whenever we are not sufficient in Him for what we need, we cry out to Him, and He comes and does the work. And then he receives the glory and we do not receive the glory because it's him in us and through us.